Welcome to Socially Distant, Spiritually Close, a podcast dedicated to exploring the biggest spiritual questions of this complex and challenging moment. I'm your host, Rabbi Michael Knopf. Shabbat Shalom, everybody. In 1942, in Munich, Germany, a group of university students led by siblings Hans and Sophie Scholl began an anonymous leaflet and graffiti campaign that called for active opposition to the Nazi regime. Their leaflet said things like, since the conquest of Poland, 300,000 Jews have been murdered in this country in the most bestial way. Of course, we now know that their estimates and tallies were quite off by 1942, but 300,000, they said, were murdered in this country in the most bestial way. The German people slumber on in dull, stupid sleep and encourage the fascist criminals. Each wants to be exonerated of guilt. Each one continues on his way with the most placid, calm conscience. But he cannot be exonerated. He is guilty, guilty, guilty. The group's leaders, as some of you know, were arrested by the Gestapo just a few months later, in February 1943. Shortly thereafter, they were tried, in quotes, by the regime and many of them were sentenced to death or imprisonment. No defendants were given an opportunity to speak at their trial. The Scholl siblings were executed by guillotine four days after their arrest. Just before the executioner dropped the blade on his neck, Hans Scholl finally spoke. Long live freedom. I've been thinking about the white rose a lot these past four years. I even Uh, started wearing a white rose on my lapel from time to time, inspired by uh, a member of our community, Henri Mizels, a survivor of the Shoah, who wears one as well. And I have especially been thinking a lot about the white rose over the past few days. On Wednesday, we watched in horror as barbarians inspired and incited by the President of the United States, overran the Capitol, defiling and plundering the seat of our Republic, the highest symbol of our democracy. Think about this. On Wednesday, Confederate battle flags flew in the National Capitol, a victory that even Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia never achieved. Of course, as columnist Charles Pierce pointed out subsequently, the Army of Northern Virginia didn't have the Capitol's putative defenders opening the barricades for it. Neither did the British Army, the last invading force to capture the Capitol in the War of 1812. Indeed, as the mob stormed into the Capitol to ransack offices, terrorize lawmakers and interrupt the certification of the presidential election of a free and fair presidential election, they were met with a notably weak show of force by the Capitol Police, who were the officers responsible for quelling the insurrection. Kelly Carter Jackson, a reporter for The Atlantic, noted, to many of these acts of violence, officers responded with 
immense restraint or full capitulation. In other cases, their unpreparedness had fatal consequences. One woman was killed by police, three other people died, and subsequently an officer succumbed to his injuries. Videos released that day and in subsequent days portrayed a friendlier side of those interactions. One widely circulated shot shows a rioter taken, taking a selfie with an officer inside the Capitol halls, while others depict insurrectionists being calmly escorted by police out of the building they'd just overtaken. I saw a video yesterday where protesters, just before one of the protesters was fatally shot, the protesters were trying to break down the door of the speaker's chambers in the Capitol. And the officers simply moved out of the way of the rioters who were using batons to break down the doors. And those scenes, I'm not the first to note, were a stark contrast to what the nation witnessed from police mere months ago during the Black Lives Matter protests. Here in Richmond, we even saw it. You could see videos for yourself of peaceful demonstrators tear gassed and pinned to the ground. People who were standing still shown the full force of state violence. Fortunately, the mob violence was met with widespread and bipartisan, though sadly and terrifyingly not universal outrage and condemnation. And it looks like it might even result in the president's removal from office for the crime of inciting insurrection, which would be the deadliest charge ever leveled against an American president, or indeed any elected official since perhaps Jefferson Davis. It is extremely distressing that there are still some people, including people in positions of power for whom this is still not their rock bottom. One wonders where that might be. And yet for many of those whose consciences and senses of duty have rightly been stirred by this presidentially incited terror, I couldn't help but feel more than a little outrage. How could we not see this coming? How could we not have known, not only because the rioters telegraphed every single thing that they were going to do in advance on social media and in other platforms. News is coming out seemingly hourly about the coordination of these rioters, about the organization of the mob. People showed up with t-shirts saying Civil War January 2021. They knew what they were going to do and they communicated with each other about doing it. And it was widely known, at least in some circles, what they were going to do. So not, I don't only mean that, right? How could you not see this coming? But also how could we not have known something like this was the inevitable outcome of a president whose nearly daily outrages have never been meaningfully checked or restrained? who's been allowed to chisel away at our norms, flout the rule of law, and defy basic human decency at every turn. How many of us didn't speak up when the president or then candidate vilified immigrants and refugees? How many of us didn't speak up 
when he labeled journalists as enemies of the state? How many of us didn't speak up when he encouraged violence at his campaign rallies? How many of us didn't speak up when his immorality and misogyny was caught on tape by Access Hollywood? How many of us didn't say anything when he invited Russian interference in the 2016 election? Or when he banned Muslims from entering the country shortly after his inauguration? When he called Nazis very fine people, how many of us didn't speak up? How many of us didn't speak up when he ripped children out of their parents' arms at the border? When he locked asylum seekers in cages, when still to this day, the government is still unable to reunite hundreds of children with their parents? How many of us didn't, didn't speak up when he tried to abuse the power of his office in order to extort a foreign leader into digging up dirt on his political opponent? or when he responded to a deadly global pandemic with callousness, cruelty, and utter incompetence resulting in the needless loss of tens of thousands of lives. How many of us didn't speak up when he called for the gassing and clubbing of peaceful protesters in order to stage a cynical photo op in front of a church while holding a Bible? How many of us didn't speak up when for two months he deliberately spread falsehoods about a free and fair election and stoked the embers of political violence? Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel famously said that in a free society, some are guilty, but all are responsible. To be sure, those who stormed the Capitol on Wednesday are guilty of the crimes they deliberately chose to commit, as is, in my view, the president and many in his circle who deliberately incited them to action. They should be prosecuted and held to account for what they've done. And it's quite possible that there's more guilt that's yet to be uncovered, from military leaders to law enforcement officials who failed to respond appropriately to this assault on our democracy, maybe who deliberately allowed it to happen. But ultimately, I can't shake the feeling that responsibility for what happened Wednesday is much more widespread. From officials who have enabled and encouraged the president and his most violent supporters, who've courted their support, those who've been complicit with lawlessness and cruelty, those tens of millions who have continued to vote for those leaders, including the fact that more people voted for President Trump in 2020 than did in 2016, and who very narrowly almost gave many of the president's most ardent enablers, majorities back in Congress. And who all of us, myself included, have stood idly by when we could and should have spoken out, whether out of a feeling of powerlessness or numbness or willful ignorance. Some are guilty but all are responsible. 
There's a great book that I read when I was studying with Rabbi Sid Schwartz in the Clergy Leadership Incubator, a book by the business scholars, Ronald Heifetz, Alexander Grayshaw, and Marty Linsky from the Harvard Business School called The Practice of Adaptive Leadership. And the authors talk about the illusion of the broken system. And they say there's a myth that drives many change initiatives into the ground, that the organization needs to change because it is broken. The reality is that any social system, including an organization or a country or a family, is the way it is because the people in that system, at least those individuals and factions with the most leverage, want it that way. In that sense, on the whole, on balance, the system is working fine, even though it may appear to be dysfunctional in some respects to some members and outside observers, and even though it faces danger just over the horizon. As our colleague Jeff Lawrence poignantly says, there's no such thing as a dysfunctional organization because every organization is perfectly aligned to achieve the results it currently gets. It is incumbent, therefore, upon us to consider the ways in which our system is set up, the ways in which we participate in that system, all of us, in order to get the results that we saw this week. Some are guilty, but all are responsible. Wednesday's actions don't reflect a broken system. On some level, they reflect the system working exactly as it's been designed. And so therefore, unless the system is changed, we're likely to see more and more examples of that brokenness. Liberation, on the other hand, only happens when people who were part of a system of oppression, who were part of a, of a system that is getting oppressive results, that is set up in some ways to get oppressive results. Those who are part of that system, the complicit and the complacent, liberation only happens when those people decide to step out of that system and make a different choice. A choice that reforms the system, a choice that redeems the system and everybody in it. That plays out powerfully in this week's Torah portion in Parashat Shemot in the beginning of the book of Exodus. We see history's most iconic tyrant rising to power, but we often forget that Pharaoh doesn't start out by killing Hebrew babies or ordering their death. That's not the first step. First, Pharaoh rises to power by spreading misinformation about the Israelite to the immigrant population within Egypt, by imposing forced labor on them, by imposing taskmasters upon them, by commanding them to erect cities, storage garrison cities, Pitom and Ramses. It's only after those schemes don't achieve their desired end, the complete subjugation of the Israelites, the blunting of the growth of the Israelite population that Pharaoh moves to the most brutal tactics of his regime, 
of ordering all Israelite babies to be killed. And in each step of the way, at each turn, Pharaoh has the tacit consent and explicit participation of other leaders and ordinary citizens. Multiple times in the opening chapters of Exodus, we're told that Pharaoh communicates with all of his people, telling them to impose taskmasters on the Israelites, to throw all babies into the Nile. And it happens over a period of many years. It's not immediate. The Israelites, we're told by tradition, are enslaved for hundreds of years. And this early Pharaoh's initiative is at least the process of decades. Who's guilty of the oppression of the Israelites? Well, Pharaoh, of course, and those who carried out his policies. But who's responsible? Cast a stone anywhere and you'll hit a responsible party. The story doesn't begin to change until the midwives, Shifra and Pua, openly defy Pharaoh's tyrannical and immoral order to kill the Israelite babies as they're being delivered on the birth stool. And then in sequence, we see Yocheved, Moses' mother, and Miriam, Moses' sister, also openly defying Pharaoh's cruel and immoral order. Miriam is even called later in tradition Hanaviah, the prophetess, because she may be uniquely among the other Israelites who in some ways are victims in the story, but in other ways, right, everybody who is part of a system is caught up in how that system functions. And we see this in many of the Israelites as the story goes on from their leaders and Israelite shotrim officials to the average Israelites who, when Moses comes and says, announces their liberation, reject Moses because of the cruelty that Pharaoh imposes on them as a result of Moses's presence. So the Israelites too are both victims and participants in this oppressive system. But Miriam, maybe uniquely among the Israelites, is able to see what is possible in resistance. And so encourages her parents to continue having babies in defiance of Pharaoh's order. And then when Moses is born, helps her mother save Moses' life. And then Pharaoh's daughter defies her father's tyranny. Seeing a basket in the Nile, knowing once she opens the basket that this is an Israel, this is a Hebrew baby. And knowing also, therefore, that that baby was marked for death, but nevertheless choosing to save that baby's life with the help, the defiant help of Miriam and ultimately Moses' mother, Yocheved. And then finally, we get to Moses in the story who is perhaps chosen by God for his willingness to step outside of the oppressive system and make a different choice, to intervene when a taskmaster is cruelly beating an Israelite, to intervene when two Israelites are fighting with each other, to intervene when shepherds are assaulting women at the well. 
to consider a bush on fire. To be willing to go into the seat of power and demand a change. Liberation only happens, according to the book of Exodus, when people who are part of the system of oppression decide to step out of that system and make a different choice. Like the Scholl siblings and the other leaders of the White Rose in Germany, like so many of who we call the righteous among the nations, like so many Jewish partisans and resistors during the Nazi tyranny, like so many throughout history, who have decided at great personal risk that the dictates of their conscience were too great to bear, that the needs of justice were too great to ignore, and that they were willing to risk anything and everything to courageously step out of the system of oppression, to step out of the system of lawlessness and cruelty, to step out of the system of state-sponsored violence and blatant injustice, and urge their fellow citizens and their leaders to make a different choice, to change the makeup of the system. So my question for us on this Shabbat, following one of the most traumatic days many of us have ever experienced in our country, one of the most traumatic days that maybe our country has ever experienced in its history, to ask ourselves, have we yet taken stock of our own place in the brokenness? Do we see our part in the system? And if we do, can we make a choice to step outside and to work to affect transformation? Only when we recognize how we are part of the system, only when we recognize how we are the source of something, only when we recognize that the Capitol Police and how they responded to the protesters are our agents. And the police in various cities across the country, including in Washington, who responded to Black Lives protesters in a different way, that they are our agents too. They are acting on our behalf that our leaders are responsive to our votes and our voices. And only when we realize that we are the source of something do we recognize that we have a power, the power to make a difference about it. When we think that we are passive, victims, when we castigate the system as broken or leaders as broken parts of a working system, but fail to see how we are all bound up within the system and participants in it. Well, then we are indeed powerless to change it. In order to fix something, we have to own our contribution. And only by owning our contribution can we possibly be stirred to make a difference.
in a free society, some are guilty, but all are responsible. And liberation, redemption happens when we who share responsibility, all of us, myself included, we who share responsibility, decide no longer to be complicit or complacent and step out of that system. And like midwives, like Miriam, like Yocheved, like Pharaoh's daughter, like Moses, move to make a different choice and be agents of our own and each other's redemption. Shabbat Shalom. This has been Socially Distant, Spiritually Close with Rabbi Michael Knopf. I hope that this episode has helped you find a little faith and hope, enrichment and uplift during this complex and challenging time. If you haven't already, please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. That way you won't miss an episode. Please also rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice so that others will have an easier time finding us and joining in the conversation. Socially Distant, Spiritually Close is recorded during virtual gatherings of my congregation, Temple Bethel in Richmond, Virginia. Socially Distant, Spiritually Close is produced by Dr. Gillian Frank. Our theme music is composed and produced by Stephen Frost. Our cover art was designed by Judith Russian, using a photograph by Miriam Aniel. I have been your host, Rabbi Michael Knopf. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other.